the trauma healing learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. According to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, 20.4% of American adults have chronic pain, and 7.4% have high-impact pain. That is, pain that limits their daily activities and daily living. Mm-mm. That's a high number, and one that encompasses many circumstances and conditions. For those of you following along in the blink of an eye story, you know we have arrived at the Shepherd Center, where their first response to controlling pain was not the use of narcotics, a direct contrast from the way Archer's pain was controlled in the intensive care unit at Atlantic Care. Well, Shepherd Center is a spinal cord injury expert facility, and I thought they might understand more about the central nervous system. I wondered what methods they had and if we could avoid narcotics. I had come to believe that hospitals turned to the use of narcotics to ease pain, in part because they're not trauma-informed and do not understand the central nervous system in part because they don't know about other alternatives to pain, and in part because, after 30 days in the intensive care unit at Atlantic Care, a Level 1 hospital, I had come to believe that dedicated staff relied on narcotics for the trauma patients because the staff themselves were in need of protection from the trauma they faced daily. It's only human if you're not trauma-informed, and most were not. And why would they be? Trauma-informed responses are not taught in medical or nursing schools, by and large. So for us, even at the Shepherd Center, I was trying to avoid narcotics for Archer, but he was still an excruciating pain from the deep lung suctions, and he was now also in excruciating secondary pain related to the chest tube procedures and the building up gunk in his airways, causing him to feel like he was suffocating. I worried about my son and how we'd control this pain he was in, pain I'd never seen before, which frightened me. And I worried about his requests for more narcotics. And I worried about my caving in. I didn't know how long it would last and how long he would last. I shuddered at the fleeting thought it could be there for the rest of his life. But I also didn't believe that. Archer and I, together, gently leaned into his pain and sleepless nights to not fight it, but to allow the pain while we shifted our focus and thoughts to what brought rest and other pleasant 
imaginations. I did this because of a belief I had from my work in conflict transformation that is trauma-informed, and that if you don't fight the clench of stress, you can think more clearly. And I also remembered, as a girl, being struck by how people living through World War II would go to the movies for relief. These experiences and the very real unfolding and ongoing path to control Archer's physical pain eventually led me to today's guest. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 3, Unlearn Your Pain. I met Dr. Howard Schubiner in 2019 through the Shift Network. I was taking one of the many classes I related to trauma and trauma healing, and Dr. Schubiner was my instructor on pain. In today's Trauma Healing Learning, I am very pleased to introduce you to this esteemed and quietly courageous physician, Dr. Howard Schubiner. He specializes in chronic pain, acute pain, and the ways we can begin to understand pain. I learned from Dr. Schubiner more about how to unwind the linkages in our brains to how pain is tied into our central nervous systems and thinking. Dr. Schubiner's approach to chronic pain, one that focuses on the mind-body phenomenon and the emotional connection to most chronic pain syndromes, might just revolutionize your life. Dr. Schubiner has published 60 studies on everything from the neuroscience of pain to ADHD in adolescence. He believes you can eliminate chronic pain. Dr. Schubiner's work stands on the shoulders of giants like Dr. John Sarno and many neuroscientists who have informed his medical teachings. So take a deep breath, settle in, and relax. Here we go. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 3, Unlearn Your Pain. I am blessed to introduce you to Dr. Howard Schubiner. Dr. Schubiner is the clinical director and medical advisor of Freedom from Chronic Pain, and he is the author of Unlearn Your Pain. He is board certified in pediatrics, adolescent medicine, and internal medicine, and he is practicing at Providence Hospital in Southfield, Michigan. Welcome, Dr. Schubiner. (laughs) Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, please call me Howard. Mm, Thank you. I very much appreciate that because I have taken Howard's course, um, an elongated, wonderful course through the Shift Network that I'd highly recommend, and became familiar with him and his thinking, and then got his book, Unlearn Your Pain, which I would highly recommend to our listeners. But I thought that we might begin with, well, just an invocation of gratitude that I am so appreciative of the time that you're giving me and our listeners uh, this morning to 
join as kindred spirits in helping to alleviate suffering and to propel healing. And with your background in chronic pain, I'm wondering if our listeners who aren't familiar with your work could become a bit familiar with how you might describe the basis, um, thinking, the science behind your theory about chronic pain. Right. Well, there's no my theory because, you know, science is built on the shoulders of giants. And uh, there's really nothing almost as I found very few ideas that are brand new under the sun. I've been a doctor for, I don't know, 35, almost 40 years now. You know, as a doctor, you see a lot of suffering. There's no doubt about that. But I didn't really understand the depths and the, and the intricacies of the connection between the mind and the body until about 20 years ago uh, when I read a book by Dr. John Sarno about back pain. I was just kind of really struck and taken by his ideas that mental stress can cause real physical pain. And uh, for the last 20 years, I've just immersed myself in the science, the neuroscience of the brain, what pain is, uh, why pain develops. And, and I've learned so much. For example, I can just say now, after 20 years of doing this, that the vast majority of people who have chronic pain are not suffering from a structural injury in their body. I mean, that is a bizarre, shocking, weird, and revolutionary statement that I can make because I've been working in this field and I've studied the literature intensely and we've done research on it as well. So, and then I've learned that it's not just pain. <laughs> when people have trauma and stress in their life, particularly if they've had trauma and stress earlier in life, it kind of gets rekindled. Uh, later in life, and the brain can turn on tremendous, overwhelming fatigue in the absence of tissue damage in the body, tremendous and overwhelming pain or burning or tingling or numbness or diarrhea or frequent urination or ringing in the ears or, you know, anxiety or depression and insomnia and just this whole cascade of problems that so many people have, and so many people have so many of them that they think they're incredibly broken. Yes. Yes. You and I almost arrived perhaps in similar ways, my being a lawyer and transformative mediator by background, and I have worked with thousands of, of people in deep conflict from divorce to losing their businesses, fractures uh, with their business partners, their their trust and their estates and their families fractured over, over death and money. Uh, those are probably our three greatest areas. And then just the workplace with people who, uh, two executives who are just not working well together and they bring two entire departments down with them, not to mention companies and on it goes. And I, too, got so interested in understanding that if there wasn't anything, you know, wrong with people, but they had these things going on in their lives and they presented with all that, that panoply that you just laid out that seemed to be cascading from uh, shortness of breath, 
uh, to fatigue, to definitely not being able to think clearly and having a, having to create an entirely different skill set that wasn't like problem solving. It had to help to transform the conflict experience. And then when there wasn't, uh, as I later learned from you, something structural, I, I just, I love that. And I want to talk more with you about that, how, you know, you can rule out what is structural first, but I think it is quite revolutionary to many people and many educated people that pain and and how the body manifests emotional and mental pain is very real, but it is not something that is is related to you know the disease or something that has happened externally to the body, and yet it uh, shows up in the body. And, yeah, uh, it's it's amazing. It's utterly amazing. Yeah. There's a new neuroscience called predictive processing that most physicians are unaware of because it's not taught in medical schools because it's neuroscience. Yes. And what it posits and says, and they've shown this through extensive research, is that our brain actually creates what we experience. We don't see with our eyes. Our eyes send light in, but the light impulses have to be transformed to electrical impulses in the brain to the visual cortex and the visual cortex creates those images and our brain can see things that aren't there we can hear things that aren't there it happens all the time how many people have felt their cell phone vibrating in their pocket when it wasn't yes right i mean everyone almost everyone has had that kind of experience where you hear your name being called yeah and or you have a baby and you, and just the, the slightest, you, you still hear the sounds, uh, you know, yeah. of the hospital. Or I know when I was in the ICUs with Archer for six months, when I, when I got home to my house, I would still awaken because I was certain there was a code, you know, the alarms were going off again because I was so yeah. on alert. Uh, my body and my brain were so on alert for yeah. catastrophe. And it turns out that our brains are designed or evolved or whatever to create an alarm system. And it's not when you touch a hot stove, it's not your finger causing pain. It's actually the brain causing pain. Impulses go to the brain, but the brain decides whether to turn on pain or not. So sometimes, and it's not uncommon if people have injuries and have no pain, because the brain may decide at a subconscious level that something else is more important, like survival or you know whatever. And research has shown very clearly that emotional pain activates the same pathways and circuits in the brain as does a physical injury. So the pain that results from emotional injury is exactly the same and every bit as real and can be every bit as severe as the pain that can result from a kidney stone or in labor so it's and once just, people understand that it's just like you say it's, it's it's revolutionary it's revolutionary and let's let's even slow that down and unpack that because it's so profound so i just became a grandmother uh two days ago i'm so excited and you remind me in my own parenting how many times I have, a, I have a daughter, Billy and I, my husband and I, we have a daughter and four sons. 
and how even when they were so young or they would trip or they would fall and we'd scoop them up and, and we'd laugh and say, up went, you know, down went McGinty or up came Joshua just to, you know, keep it light and lively. And they could fall and scrape themselves and get up and keep going. It occurred to me after when they were, you know, like two and this had happened, you know, a dozen or more times in their lives because they, it was just like, oh, I fell. And even if there was a little bit of blood and they would look, I'm like, it's okay. We're going to wipe it up. Keep on going. It was really just amazing how it can propel children forward as well to not kind of um, collapse or disintegrate when they hurt themselves, when when other adults might be like, oh my gosh, it's terrible, it's awful. And I'm wondering if that's not related in some way well, to this piece. Yeah, this is exactly one of the things, one of the most important things that we teach people as a way out of chronic pain. Because what happens is, is there's a natural tendency, of course, when pain occurs, because pain is a strong warning signal, and we need pain. If you didn't get pain when you broke an ankle, you'd walk or run on a broken ankle, and you would damage it forever. So pain is very important and necessary. And it's up to us to interpret the pain. So if you have the pain of a broken ankle, you want to rest and get medical care. If you have the pain of a broken heart from a broken business, as you said, a business relationship or a broken child or a broken marriage, then you want to address that problem, but you don't need to address the pain as a way, in a way that makes it worse, as you were just saying. And so if people can say thank you to the pain, like a smoke alarm. We say thank you to a smoke alarm when yeah. it goes up, even though it's loud and annoying. It's got to be loud to get our attention. Our brain system has to be loud enough to get our attention when it thinks we're in danger, whether that's physical danger or emotional danger. And so the and there's a what happens is there's a vicious cycle. So the pain occurs or the other symptom, fatigue, insomnia, anxiety, depression, whatever or all those, <laughs> and then the person reacts typically and normally, as anyone would do, with fear fear of it, focus on it, worry about it, monitoring it, frustration with it, and going to doctors, trying to figure it out endlessly, and the doctors may not have any answer because the tests are normal. They say you've got X, Y, or Z disease, which doesn't mean anything because it's just a name, and it gets worse and worse because that feedback goes back to the brain, the danger signal or the salience network, as neuroscientists call it, in the brain. And then the brain makes it worse because it's getting feedback like your kid would get when the parent freaks out when they fall of, oh, this is a big problem. And then the pain spreads over time. It gets worse over time. Yeah, so we really exacerbate really yeah, our pain exactly. by how it is that we think about it. Exactly. And, exactly. and it's so illuminating because if we can change our thinking about pain, we also know that pain is alleviated through the body. We heal through the body, but it does begin with how we think about the pain, doesn't it? Exactly. And when someone has an injury, 
it will heal because all injuries heal and it may heal with a scar but scars don't hurt and it may heal even with a little bit of alignment problems but we are we are born we are made and designed to revolve on this earth to deal with alignment problems yes. most people have some kind of you know if you go to a gym and they they want to do free free spinal alignment screening say no <laughs> because your alignment is not going to be perfect nobody's is you know we have this epidemic of people having pain in their hands from typing um you know typewriters were way more <laughs> way more struggle <laughs> than the keyboard <laughs> these days <laughs> yeah. oh i i grew up listening to my mother type type typing she was a secretary of many boards <laughs> She'd be typing on that uh, old IBM into the into the night, you know. And I'm, I'm, so you know, we just we just and so if someone gets an injury, it will heal. But if they're under, if that injury co-occurs with a tremendous amount of fear in their life, a tremendous amount of danger, it's maybe it happened at the same time as somebody got sick in their family, or the same time that a business problem or work problem is going on or something like that. Uh, in addition, they begin to be afraid of what it is, fearful, because they start reading about it online. Oh my God, I've got you know this foot problem and I'm reading about all these people that have foot problems that never heal and I won't be able to run again. And then there's more and more fear. And then that sets off this danger signal so that the pain doesn't go away when the body heals. Right, right. So the body has actually done its miraculous healing, uh, but the pain then continues because of what the brain is telling the body. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me in, in your work and with people who have chronic pain or people who just have pain for a period of time that might not actually be chronic yet, but they're trying to figure it out. And they do go see a number of well-intended and scholared physicians. How quickly uh, so many Americans are put on narcotics and are really living on uh, various cocktails of drugs to mask or to get them through their pain. Can, can we talk about that a bit and your, your views sure. on that or how we might give some um, some uh, some alternatives, perhaps, to our listeners. You know, suffering requires relief, and helpers, as you say, well-meaning and well-attentioned and good doctors are doing the best they can. Yeah. You know, if if you have back or neck pain and you get an MRI and it's abnormal, doctors are trained to say, well, the abnormality on the MRI must be the cause of the pain because there's an abnormality. But if you think a little bit more broadly, and, and, and everyone really knows this, is that everyone has abnormalities on their MRIs. And I'm not talking about tumors or fractures or infections, but just the normal degenerative discs and bulging discs and arthritis and these kinds of things that are normal, that everybody gets. And they, these are not the cause of pain. But yet, it's very difficult to not make that attribution. And once that attribution is made, then people can actually become worse because they're getting they're hearing statements like you've got the back of an 80-year-old or you're going to have pain the rest of your life. So in, in, in those moments, <laughs> in those moments when the films come up and there is something that is 
you know, quote unquote degenerative or it has been in the ones just, they've been there forever. And the physician or the person reading the MRI, the film, the CAT scan, whatever it is, doesn't have this knowledge that attribution can happen in right, right, right away in that moment. Yes. And, and it and could, and it could have been stemmed. It could have been paused at the outset. They've done, there's a couple of research studies where the MRI, at the bottom of the MRI, the radiologist would put these, these findings are commonly seen in, in normal or asymptomatic healthy people. And that has been shown just doing that, which is just the truth, you know, <laughs> has been shown to decrease the fear and decrease further referrals and decrease further injections and surgeries and, and medication use, all of which stem from a need to help and the intense suffering that people have. So when you put the suffering together with an explanation, which is sometimes not correct and wanting to help and the only tools in the toolbox are medications and injections or surgery then that's what people get and those have been rising dramatically in our country we're spending tons of money on procedures that have never been shown to be effective in randomized controlled studies including back surgery including injections for back pain and um and it's, and it's really sad, you know. I mean, sometimes I get enraged. Yes, yeah, some, <laughs> sometimes say. I do, too. I, while I'm really grateful for, you know, the um, just the... Um, I, I don't in some ways know enough, but I feel like I do know enough to have an opinion just even about the whole drive of the pharmaceutical, you know, industry and then what can be done to the body to, like, fix it when we're not looking at the whole body the miraculous aspects of healing naturally and giving the body time while we then retrain the brain and the mind um, to be able to also do what it was like almost divinely given to do which is to yeah. think positively and to live a full life right i was i was seeing somebody the other day who had hip pain and knee pain the uh, x-rays of the knee were perfectly fine. Um, so the doctor said, well, you've got this or this alignment problem in the knees. That's what's causing your knee pain. But it turned out it wasn't true. And I, I can tell you a little bit about some of the ways that we determine that. And we also had a lot of bilateral, you know, hip pain, both sides. And uh, the x-rays did show arthritis. And I showed them to a friend of mine who's an excellent physiatrist, PM&R doctor, and he said, Oh yeah, he's got some, you know, moderate osteoarthritis there, but a lot of people do. But he said if he came to if he came to, you know, a typical orthopedic surgeon, they would be, oh, you know, this is really bad. You need hip surgery. You need, you know, you're going to have both hips replaced. And he's a young person, and so one of the things that we do is just sit and listen to people. We take extensive histories and say, well, is the pain always there or does it come and go? Does it sometimes hurt when you run and sometimes it doesn't hurt when you run? Does it sometimes hurt when you run for a while and then it gets better as you run far, farther? What happens when you imagine running? He goes, oh, my hip is really killing me now. I'm saying, well, you're imagining running and your hip is really hurting. That's not from arthritis. That's from your brain. Yeah. 
right? So there's all these clues that we can use if we listen closely enough, as opposed to just saying, oh, the x-ray shows this. Because normal people have rotator cuff tears of the shoulder, have labral tears of the hip. Normal, healthy people have those things. You know, normal, that's what I had learned so much from you, that, um, that concept of if it is if it's pain, chronic pain, it, then it's it should be there all the time. It doesn't just come and go. And when it comes and goes, you know, it might be, you know, in the um, being created by by one's thinking. And so in applying that to myself, uh, it was enormously helpful. But I also had an experience that was in the inverse that I'd love to share with you and then have you comment on it. It was that I'm, I'm a go, go, go kind of girl. It would be when I would then meditate or, or spend real quiet time in prayer on a more frequent basis, scanning also my body, that I became aware of some pain that I was just absolutely running over because I didn't have time to pay any attention to it that was real. In my body, in other words, it almost it went both ways, where I I was able to just keep on going, and so in the slowing it down, my body was giving me clues about something I really needed to pay attention to, and in, in that instance, actually for me, it was my eyes. Um, I, I feel this grit in my eyes that I I wouldn't I just wasn't paying that much attention to, and I did go see doctors, and they said it was impossible that I felt that grit. I ended up being diagnosed with macular degeneration, watching the screens when our son was injured for six months and just not sleeping, you know, maybe an hour a night. But it, so it, it really, it, it's amazing what the mind can do, like the guys who walk on coals, right? And and can keep and not get burned. Yeah. And, and and for me, keep on going. And then on the, on the other hand, you know, the nights I haven't been able to sleep, really realizing that I am keeping myself from sleeping because I'm so worried I'm not going to be able to go, go, go the next day or to, you know, take care of our children, to do my work, to take care of my clients, to all that, you know, clean up the kitchen, clean, you know, make, make breakfast, all the things, boom, 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 boom. So it's, it's so powerful in both directions. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, all pain is real. So that's one of our mottos. And it's not that there's real pain or imaginary pain. All pain is real. It's a question of what's causing it. And so pain can be caused by the brain in the absence of any tissue damage, as I've mentioned. It can be caused by the brain in the presence of tissue damage or with a combination of the two. Most of the world of chronic pain nowadays says it's always both. It's always the brain and the body together because you don't want to separate the brain and the body because they are connected. And clearly, I agree, they are connected. Um, that's the basis of you know what I've been doing for the last 20 years. It's the basis of integration uh, for trauma work. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but what happens when, it, when you just assume that it's always both, that you tend to overestimate the 
the body. You over, it's the biopsychosocial model. You overestimate the bio because all pe people hear is bio, bio, bio. And oh yeah, a little psychosocial. Yeah, the brain can affect it, but they really hear the body and then they get more and more worried about it. Now I spend a lot of time with my patients making sure there is not a structural problem. That's the last thing I want to do. And I'm always extremely cautious with that. I want to make sure people get evaluated and see doctors and don't just assume that it's their brain because sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. yeah. and that's critically important. And I always tell my patients, I would never say this is a mind body type problem or what I would call a neural circuit type problem unless I was absolutely certain. Uh, that being said, if you just assume that it's always a mishmash of body and mind all together, we can't figure it out, so we'll treat all pain the same. I think we're making a mistake because we're missing out on an opportunity to help free people from the worry that they're actually damaged or broken. Yeah. And what I see is that people can be liberated and the liberation comes in knowing that they're not, that there's nothing seriously wrong or nothing wrong at all. And when that happens, they can get up from the fall off their bike and smile and say, I'm going to be okay. And that calms the brain and turns off the danger signal, like turning off the smoke alarm. And if they do that enough times, gradually over time, and sometimes really quickly even, their pain will literally turn off. And the, and the world of chronic pain is saying, we, you're never going to get rid of your pain. You're just going to have to live with it and cope with it the rest of your life, which is a I mean, it may be true in some cases, of course, if there's metastatic cancer that is not going to be cured. But for, you know, most people with headaches don't have a disease in their head, 95 plus percent. Most people with back pain and neck pain, as we've shown in our recent study that hasn't been published yet, 88% of the people we evaluated for chronic neck and back pain did not have a structural problem. The people with fibromyalgia do not have disease in their body. People with irritable bowel and with the vast majority of pelvic pain syndromes do not have disease in their body. And if we just assume there is some disease, I think we're, we're selling ourselves short mm -hmm. and, and we're not giving people the opportunity to recover, to fully recover, which is, you know, such a gift. It is such a gift. And, and I, I think as a transformative mediator of another parallel, and that is, that for those who do um, live with chronic pain, never to diminish that, um, and at the same time, help to relieve them of being very clung to being stuck as a victim, if you will, of chronic pain. That yeah. would happen in my practice frequently, that to the idea of really listening deeply and and I might add lovingly, you know, yeah. you know, the way I've really come to believe uh, conflict transformation and now trauma healing works is love. Love, love is the greatest healer. And to believe that no one is broken. Um, we might think we're broken and, and our body, our bones or something about our body might be broken temporarily, but we are not broken. And um, I think there can be a clinging to a cycle of chronic pain, almost like don't don't tell me I'm not, or maybe because there have been many messages that it's in your head, when 
the pain is real, but it hasn't been fully understood or explained that it is that head body experience. And so there, therefore there's this clinging and, and that's part of the psychosocial piece of it as well. I think there's a certain identity that can be developed around uh, my being someone who suffers and, and therefore I, I don't want to let go of something that actually became something that defined me. Right. And of course, that may not be on a conscious level. That may occur on a subconscious yes, level. Yeah, Everyone's, so. everyone, when I've been in pain, I would walk down the street and say, why aren't they in pain? Why aren't they in pain? You know, why come I'm the one in pain? <laughs> you know, everybody has that. That's, that's normal. But the, what you, what she touched on is critical. You know, for the first 20 years of being a doctor, I thought I was a caring and kind doctor. And I was, but nowhere near what I've learned in the last 20 years, because, you know, you have to explain to people, not only that they're not damaged, not only that their pain is real, that it's not their fault, that they're not faking, they're not crazy. But if you don't do it with love and compassion, how, why would they ever even listen to you? And if, and if you don't understand, I mean, the simplest act of putting yourself in their shoes and seeing what they've been through because the trauma and the stress and the emotions that they've had, whether they're maximal or minimal or anywhere in the middle, they're, those are all impacting on their brain and their brain is learning that and living in that and oftentimes getting stuck in that. And then it just becomes a perfect storm for, for these oftentimes horrible and overwhelming and disabling physical symptoms and so they have the double whammy of having feeling broken and and having all these horrible physical symptoms on top of the stress and trauma that they've endured and then doctors are saying you know just get over it and it just compassion is is the key and sometimes people frequently those folks are have a hard time being compassionate to themselves. Yes, I was thinking the same so thing. So that's, that's critical. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, sometimes it can be, I, I know I, I grew up with knowing if I feel really good about me, it doesn't really matter if what I face in the world. But for, for many, and I still cling and love that. But I do think that for us as practitioners and for any person viewing themselves as a practitioner, you know, as a friend, as a parent, as a professional, that when we can model that non-judgment, compassionate, really loving stance, even when someone thinks they're going crazy or is, or is very uh, obstreperous or even ugly by anybody's measure, that they can begin to replicate that experience for themselves. Right. And the other thing that's critical, uh, in addition to the understanding of what's going on, the care and compassion that we need to give to people and help them see for themselves, the, another thing that's critically important is the ability to recognize that we are emotional beings and that we have emotions, that, that emotions are not negative or dangerous or harmful, whether the emotion is anger or guilt or grief 
or sadness or fear. All those emotions are necessary and play an important role as part of our brains alerting us and helping us. And what happens is, is that in our society, people are taught to hold those emotions all in and just kind of keep going. And when we hold those emotions in and don't have safe and healthy ways to express those, that becomes part of that danger signal. You know, the brain is, is living in, in low-level festering anger, low-level festering fear, low-level festering guilt or sadness. So part of our work is to help people express those emotions in safe and healthy ways. And that's been, you know, it's another mind-blowing and revolutionary thing that people need to develop skills with and learn. And a lot of therapists kind of want to tamp down emotions yeah. and not, oh. know, not <clears throat> people get so angry, for example. It's like, oh, no. So, so, so do lawyers and mediators, <laughs> um, which is why we really, you know, we sort of zagged 30 years ago in the mediation world. Well, mediation hadn't really been born yet, but we were birthing it. And I had a very, I had a very strong belief in emotions being at the table because emotions, without our emotional intelligence, you know, we're we don't make moral decisions, right? When we when we care about other people or the or causing harm or mitigating or not causing harm, that comes from an emotional expression of humanity. And so emotions have always had such an important role in a transformative mediator's world, um, even when it's a commercial matter, you know. And, um, yeah, and we've taken a lot of arrows for that, as, as I would imagine you have in your profession uh, with a number of doctors saying like, oh, my, you know, come, you know that's, that's just ridiculous. You know, or, or those people don't know what they're talking about. Uh, but indeed, and and I and I will be the first to welcome that as well, and to become curious when I have my own reactivity about others' resistance to what I know and have come to believe is true. That they're just having resistance to what I have come to know and believe is true, and so right. to relax into both. Right. I mean, anger is important. Anger is righteous often. Yeah. And but anger sent out into the world as violence is never helpful or never healing or or restorative. Um, yeah, it but anger that comes out and so but anger held in is toxic to the to ourselves. And anger and so, held in, you know, you referenced earlier just what could be earlier traumas, and of course we now have the ACEs study that has been so helpful. For people being able to even track, gosh, I had these things going back in my background. And for me, all these tools are so marvelous, not not so much for the reason that the tools were developed, but for the secondary reason, which is to allow awareness and then an opportunity for people to uh, be able to talk about uh, something. Not like, oh, yeah, I had... You know, I have got five aces, you know, my, my mother left me, my father was an alcoholic, I witnessed abuse in my household, you know, and on it goes. But rather, I had these things happen to me when I was young. I want to go back and see where they reside still in my structure and in my thinking that I haven't yet digested, I haven't yet metabolized. And, and I think that's so much a part of chronic pain. 
It is. It, it clearly is. And when I first learned about from my friend and colleague, Dr. Ellen Abbas in Halifax, about ISTDP, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy, where they helped people to express their feelings in, in safe and healthy ways in an office, in writing, in in imagination, yeah. uh, instead of revenge. You know, in, in a podcast. <laughs> in a podcast. And, uh, and um, my uh, following that, my you know, fantastic, amazing colleague, Mark Lumley at Wayne State University, and I developed this thing that we're now calling emotional awareness, as you said, awareness, emotional awareness and expression therapy, becoming aware of the emotions, expressing them in safe and healthy ways. And allowing us to move through our pain, through our trauma, to healing on an emotional level. It's been, you know, just revolutionary to see that. And we've done research on that. There's a lot of research that Dr. Abbas has done as well. That dealing with emotions is one of the most powerful ways to heal. So that has become critical and not that we're acting emotionally so much in the world, but we're expressing emotion in safe and healthy ways. And then we're acting in the world in civil ways, but sometimes assertive ways and, and protecting ourselves and taking care of ourselves and loving ourselves. And yeah, yeah, I I do. I, I agree. I think people might get afraid of, of their emotions or others emotions when they are absolute clues that something important is happening in their life or has been fractured or is in need of, of defending and protecting. And also this, this piece that if they express their emotion, they will be ostracized somehow. And therefore then the best thing is just, just to be a nice guy, you know, just right. to be a, a nice woman. And it's like, well, it, it's not, it's not quite so much about, just being nice and certainly not about rolling over. It's it's about finding your voice in a way that is not harming yourself or other people. You can be very strong right. um, and still and be very connected. Oftentimes emotions are seen as forbidden. Yes. And wrong. There's very few parents who have gotten through parenting without hating their children at some point. <laughs> and if they feel like they can never you know, if, if that if that means they have this thought, oh, I hate my kid right now. If they have that thought that they're a horrible person, that they're a bad parent, and that they should immediately, you know, start feeling really guilty and then coddle their kid, which will somehow make things worse, right, or whatever. <laughs> and so, but the point is, if they can just say, take a piece of paper and write out all their feelings, how they're so upset and then they hate their kid right now and then shred it and then take some deep breaths, and then also write how much they love their kid. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's both. But then they can act, then they can act in the world, right? And, you know, I mean, I, I tell this, you know, with, with our, you know, with our spouses, I remember, you know, writing, getting, riding home from work one day after a long day, and I was tired, and a lot was going on, and my wife calls and says, hey, would you run a couple errands for me? And I'm like, sure, honey. And then I but I'm not really happy about it. Sure, honey. (laughs) So I'm going to do the errands, but if I do them with resentment, when I get home, I'm, you know, we might have end up in a, I might say something snippy, right? Yeah. 
So what I do is after I hang up the phone, I start yelling and screaming and swearing and getting all that out at her and at life and everything that I'm upset about. Yeah, empty. Right? And I let it all out and I take some deep breaths and then I step back and gain perspective on what's important and what's reality. And then I do the chores with love. It's a huge difference, a huge gift to me in my body so i'm not developing you know headache you know when i get home and into our marriage right i think it's one of the foundational components in conflict transformation understanding you know we'll call it 3.0 just way out there but trauma healing that we can have these two experiences living side by side in the here moment the anger and resentment and the love and gratitude. And if we just stay on one of those tracks without recognizing and incorporating and integrating the other, including also the love track, if we're like, you know, things can be falling apart and someone's like, oh, it's all fine. You know, that's a bypass. But to really experience and more fully expansively experience that we can have both living side by side. I I think that is the real path of integration for trauma and trauma healing. Right. And we have to honor ourselves in that process and be compassionate to ourselves and stand up for ourselves and make sure that we're treating ourselves well so that we can be truly loving and giving and caring to others so, I think that's so much of the blink of an eye story. You know, it's it's up, it's down, it's it's angry, it's loving, it's forgiving, it's you know terrible fractures that that have happened. Um, it's despair, it's hope, because they all they all live together. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm thinking too, even from a very practical standpoint, as if that isn't practical. We could stop there and and just really live into that. But I know that you specialize in understanding the autonomic uh, nervous system. And we haven't had a chance to talk about that yet. And it's particularly important because for quadriplegics or spinal cord injured uh, people, autonomic dysreflexia is what so many doctors are unfamiliar with, and it's what causes so many mistakes in medical judgment for treating spinal cord injury in their early days. And in fact, most hospitals in the United States do not have spinal cord injury expertise, just a handful in all of the United States. And this concept of autonomic dysreflexia goes um, unacknowledged because it's just unknown. And I know that you work a great deal and have looked at autonomic, uh, the nervous system. Can we talk about that right now? Sure, sure. I've seen a few people lately on the topic of paralysis, and uh, paraplegia or quadriplegia, who have had pain. And it's been quite interesting. It's a new area for me, uh, but it's been quite interesting I'm seeing a lady now who was paralyzed from T7 or so down, and she has this burning ring of pain around her torso, 
But the funny thing is it comes and goes. It's turning on and off. And she has this other burning, tingling kind of heaviness sensations in her legs that again are turning on and off. And, you know, I'm not really familiar with the area very much. I, I don't specialize in spinal cord injuries or any of that stuff, but I'm just starting to work with a couple of people with these injuries to see if we can change their brain to, to change these sensations because why are they turning on and off? You know, yeah. if the, the paralysis doesn't turn on and off, that's due to nerve damage clearly. But what's causing this these sensations to turn on and off? You know, <laughs> it's it would be pretty so, exciting. You know, I know, like that. yeah, you know, Archer has so he is at he was a burst C two to C five, and so his he would be uh, from an Asia perspective. He's an Asia A C four complete, and his his pain in the first months was not not so much what what you or I would call chronic but it was ongoing for structural excruciating structural pain having his lungs uh, suctioned out at the deep recesses where there was tons of bacteria from when he took in salt water in the sea when he drowned and just being suctioned down into those caves and the mental what was coming in that he was just strong enough to continue persevering knowing the pain that was coming when we got through that chapter I was concerned that there might have been lingering and what we did and I think really helped was in the time when he experienced the structural pain was to help him lean fully in to that pain and not fight it, to, to know that it, it would pass with breath work and, and for me a great deal of prayer with him while, mm. while he kind of rode those, those crests. But now, years later, with the uh, paralyzed aspects of his body being from the shoulder up, is what he's got that's not paralyzed and the shoulder down, which is in using his shoulder so much, he's now bone on bone in his right arm because that, that's how he moves. He lifts up his arm with his shoulder. He's an artist. He's a mathematician, an engineer at UPenn. And, and so he's had an orthopedic say, you just you shouldn't do anything. You're bone on bone. No one really knows how to do this surgery because it's got to be neuroorthopedia. So... We're up all night with him, working his back and, and uh, things that we know are structural, but also I, I think it's moving into the place of real chronic pain. And so we'll work towards moving, leaning in, and meditation and breath work and other alternatives like you know, the CBD oils and lotions. But it seems that it's not enough for what it is that he anticipates now will come when he goes to bed. So he doesn't want to go to bed. Mm -hmm. And then he's up most of, most of the night. 
And I do think this is the path of many quadriplegics for the sensation that they do have whatever is happening in the rest of the body is often experienced in the parts of the body that can and do still have sensation. Like it's all compacted in the, and because it's in, it goes to high blood pressure, which then goes to he headaches and, and a lot of monitoring of the autonomic uh, nervous system because of the dysreflexia. So knowing that you are not an expert in spinal cord injury, but you have your expertise in pain and chronic pain, I'm wondering how we might draw some insights or understandings about the role of the autonomic nervous system for people in general and then for quadriplegics. It seems to me that the brain does control the autonomic nervous system. And there are certainly people who have diseases of the autonomic nervous system, dysautonomias, et cetera. And we also see evidence of people who have uh, dysfunctions of the autonomic nervous system, but is still under the control of the brain. So to me, I try to separate those things out. I try to sort out, uh, if I can, and sometimes, you know, certainly it may be both. It's like with all my work, as we said before, you know, how much is structural, how much is neural circuit in the brain or a combination of the two. And so for me, it's, it's, it takes the form of, like I said before, listening and talking and looking and investigating and seeing, and seeing what happens. You mentioned anticipation of discomfort with your son. And I wonder what would happen if he does some exercises where he uh, simply imagines going to bed or imagines a situation which has been triggering discomfort and see what happens. You know, it may be that his brain will actually turn on some of those sensations just by imagining them, which would give us some insight, I think, into the fact that the brain is playing a role in that, whether it's completely or just a small amount, you know, mm -hmm. a little bit hard to say, but, you know, but you're doing things which are helping him use his brain, you know, breath work, meditation, et cetera. Uh, CBD oil works on the brain. So, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff that has to do with, uh, altering the brain. And as you said before, the brain can, um, you know, in fact, override certain sensations if they aren't too powerful, as you pointed out with the situation you had with your eye. Yeah. So, you know, we work with what we can. You know, we use all the resources that we have available, which is what you've been doing. And I, you know, my work is to just help people understand the power of the brain and ways to use the brain and rewire and retrain the brain for recovery and for healing. I mean, people with strokes, uh, you know, have death tissue in the brain, their brain rewires and they often, most of the time learn around it. And rewiring occurs where the death tissue, the dead tissue doesn't matter so much because the brain is rewired around it. People with Parkinson's disease which clearly a neurodegenerative disorder have been found in a variety of 
studies and, and experiences to have ways that the brain can help them work around the degenerative parts. So, you know, the idea is neuroplasticity and uh, we're helping people use that to their fullest. I, I think so. And, you know, even as it relates to Alzheimer's that, that we're seeing more and more of my, my sense of that. And I don't, I'm confident I'm not the only, but many others that we might see more and more Alzheimer's because of early trauma experiences um, that became uh, emotionally painful that then triggered uh, later Alzheimer's when they were not healed. And so you're, and I know that it's an amalgamated uh, theory of many others, as is mine with relational conflict theory. We stand on the shoulder of giants. We just have a way of putting something forth that is more simplified, that comes with deep scientific background to support it, that is very accessible uh, without uh, drugs. Um, it's just as a last piece about quadriplegics attending conferences, I've learned that so many uh, physiatrists do give uh, quadriplegics the medical marijuana card. And of course, marijuana is legal in, in so many states. And what Archer experienced is he was really relying pretty heavily, not on the, the CBD, but on the THC to go to sleep um, and, and vaping, you know, like, you know, using his shoulder and, and then realized that he was becoming very dependent on that. And so in stopping, uh, going, you know, cold turkey, if you will, I, I think that that, I think it was incredibly courageous of Archer to, to stop vaping, to try and, to try and sleep. But I do think that that's another part of the uh, what can happen to people with chronic pain that then turn to these, um, they're not alternatives per se, they're more of the alternatives that can keep them or get them addicted that uh, exacerbates then when they do want to begin to even out their own um, autonomic nervous system that for quadriplegics, it's enormously complicated because in Archer's case, his spine, spinal cord is severed. But, but you know, just as a, as a final maybe word of hope um, for people who might be relying on a narcotics um, or marijuana or hallucinogenics to take them through uh, chronic pain on a regular basis, what might we offer to them? Well, we see this frequently, of course. My general rule is I don't advise people to stop using what they're using as the first step. Because when you stop, sometimes you can get what we call the nocebo effect going on, which the brain will make things worse out of fear of stopping something. The biggest problem people have in stopping medications for pain is fear of pain. So what we try to do is assess accurately the cause of the pain and other symptoms, treat them as best we can using the power of the brain. And then as they get better, then they can begin to taper off their medication use. You know, they're often a heck of a lot happier to be in less pain and taking less or no medication. Yeah. 
Archer has already experienced uh, some of that, more that he is, in, that he's in control uh, yeah. rather than having something else that was in control of him. Yeah, and I, that that's part of that mind-body again. We can grow out of our suffering. We can grow out of our pain. There's a message there and there's a meaning there and we can repair old hurts and old things and old ways we treated ourselves through through going through a very difficult experience it's not easy it's not you know it's not automatic <laughs> but a lot of times if we kind of just look inside to our higher self and our healing self and our our wisdom and our where, wherever we get our strength spiritually or inspirationally from the world there's often a message there and that message can be really healing in terms of what we need to know <clears throat> going forward to transform our pain and our trauma into something that is a gift even though it's really really hard and you wouldn't wish it on anybody i wouldn't wish it on you know you or anyone nevertheless once once it occurs in the blink of an eye there's an opportunity in that aftermath somewhere down the road for um, for growth, I would argue. I love that, that we can grow out of these very painful experiences. And one of the beliefs that we might leave, I remind myself, and we might leave our listeners with, is when people are in crisis um, or bad ways, or difficult chapters of their lives, that it's passing, and for us to be very aware of not labeling them for that time in their lives, but to welcome them for those chapters of growth, because they they don't typically happen overnight. Even though we know from quantum physics, and I believe through love, that there can be those instant moments of forgiveness and awareness that just catapult the healing miraculously yeah. while we're you know living as humans but yeah. but for people not to hold people back because of the last conversation they had with them you know six months or two years ago when they were in such a bad place yeah yeah well I did I just can't thank you enough is there anything that you feel we have not covered there are plenty of things but anything that you would like to share with our listeners before we close this conversation for now i hope we have another conversation in the future just that there's a lot of resources out there you know we have a professional organization a nonprofit called the ppda the psychophysiologic disorders association ppdassociation.org. There's something called the tmswiki.org, which is a peer-run group, uh, again, all free, all nonprofit, uh, for people to get information about the role of the brain in creating pain and other symptoms. And, uh, you know, if people need my help, they can reach me through my website, Unlearn Your Pain. Yeah, marvelous. Thank you so much. And I will just add for, for my listeners as well, that if you're interested in, in a skill set that can help you as a parent um, or as a manager, a, a colleague, a partner, 
that Baltimore Mediation has been offering conflict transformation skills uh, for, the, for the mediator and for anyone uh, four times a year. And it's very much tied in with, uh, with the great work of Dr. Schubiner on really unlearning uh, your pain as you follow people in a compassionate way where they can then decide how they want to unlearn and to um, have this knowledge that you can then impart for yourself but also for others whom you care about and love is just is just profound hopefully someday howard uh most most of us will will know this and we will be raising our children uh, across the globe uh with these uh with these understandings so thank you yeah. so much well thank you very much for having me i really appreciate it yeah it's really been a delight Consider any chronic pain in your life now, emotional or physical, and how you might invite a new conversation with that pain, a gentle conversation, an interaction with the pain that initially wanted to protect you so you could live in ease. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion blink of an eye story at season three Episode 3, For Real. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills for professionals and parents. Register for the next course at www.baltimoremediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation.